beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Girth. Hello, Andrew. This is Sammy from Toronto. Oh, hi, Sammy. How are you doing, by the way? It's been a couple of years since you last came. We were the radio station inside a bar. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember. I want to, I'll get started. So the new book is How to Fix the Future. And um, there are over six references to tea uh, in the book. Uh, you have tea in Singapore. Tea? Yeah, you have tea in Singapore. You have tea in um, India. And I'm just curious about... Uh. Uh, your process before we get into the actual themes of the book I just want to know more about your creative process how you come up with um, ideas and insights like do you sit and think first and then start writing or do you go talk to people or like how do you generate uh, your yeah, insights well, you guess that I drink a lot of tea either I'm drinking a lot of tea or I'm going to the bathroom <laughs> so, uh, that's yeah, the creative process it's important well you know whatever you do gym tea walking around Ideas pop into your head at that other time. If you knew when they were going to come, then you would do stuff. But often it's very spontaneous and surprising. The new book is How to Fix the Future. And there's a really cool quote on uh, page 237. And I just wanted to read that out. Um, and then okay. we'll, we'll get into the, some of the themes and some of the ideas in the book. You write, the challenge, our challenge then, is to maintain the public conversation about these issues. So that everyone, from advertisers to governments, to consumers, is aware of how unaccountable the system is becoming. But this sometimes requires great tenacity, particularly when that conversation is only just beginning. It demands somebody enough, crazy enough, to single-handedly take on a multi-billion dollar industry. So what are some of these issues? Because you have a number of them. There's about four or so in the book that you kind of bring up. Well, the big issues, I think, in the book are the impact of technology on work and employment, and the problems with the implications of smart machines and smart technology on traditional jobs like driving or the professions or working in stores, as well as, of course, the impact of the Internet on traditional jobs, so the Amazon's decimation of traditional retail. I think that's a big issue. The second issue, which isn't exclusively bound up in technology, but technology is important, is inequality, economic, cultural inequality and its growth and the disappearance of the middle class. Uh, the third issue is our sort of cultural crisis of fake news and instability, echo chamber culture, addiction to technology and the failure to sort of be able to talk to one another and the narcissism and loneliness that seems to be a product of this. Civility. Civility, yeah. And, and then the fourth broad area, I think, is the problem with the dominant in, uh, Silicon Valley business model of free, the big data model, which is particularly perpetrated by Google and Facebook, where we get this stuff for free and we're watched all the time. So it's creating what some people call a surveillance form of capitalism. So those are the four areas which are, I think, quite problematic and which are playing out in ways that everybody can identify with, that it resonates with everyone in and outside technology. 
in the preference you reference being uh, labeled like the antichrist of Silicon Valley um, and you were kind of like quote unquote out of step with the zeitgeist and a lot of people had a lot of opposition to your ideas do you feel people are kind of slowly caught up and um, kind of on the same page now well I think it would I think it would be a rather arrogant of me to claim that people have caught up with me or that my ideas have caught on. There were other people saying the same thing a few years ago. But certainly this more skeptical attitude towards Silicon Valley has become more fashionable now. And even people within Silicon Valley are becoming very concerned, venture capitalists, entrepreneurs. Um, you see institutes now being formed, trying to seize back humanity from technology. You have people like Bill Gates warning about the breakup of companies. You have George Soros saying that Facebook and Google are almost evil. You have politicians on both left and right critiquing big tech companies from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to Ted Cruz. Uh, so the thing has changed. When I began writing in 2007, my first book was called The Amateur, in which the arguments I'm making actually are quite familiar that uh, a, a radically democratized media undermines truth, creates the echo chambers, and makes it harder and harder for professional creatives to live, uh, um, you know, even more true in some ways today than they were 10 years ago. So, yeah, I think that the, the zeitgeist has shifted. Uh, now most people actually are wary of technology, and they're certainly wary of these kind of utopian promises that technology will make the world a better place, that will democratize and empower. It has done some of those things, but it's also had some rather negative consequences. Yeah, and your book wisely is is historical. There's quite a number of like references to uh, things from the 60s and 70s. It's not just a contemporary book in a sense. And I find that's one of the things where we're presented a lot of things nowadays without any proper context or without any historical framework. So you don't really know how to digest this information. They'll tell you something about President Trump, for example, but there's been 44 other presidents. So how does this compare to other presidents or what other people have been doing? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Well, Trump is obviously um, an easy person to criticize, uh, a very convenient punch bag. But certainly his narcissism, his obsession with self-expression, his inability to listen to anyone else or contextualize himself outside himself, either historically or more broadly, um, I think uh, is, is emblematic, of, uh, emblematic of our times. It reflects the reality. Trump yeah. uh, it is as much a cause and an effect of, 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 of our network age. Um, yeah, I appreciate your compliment on the history side. I really worked on that in the book. I think the important point that I'm making is that what we're going through now is not unique. It happened before in the industrial age. Times of great disruption undermines us, undermines our confidence, our ability to display agency. It was true in the industrial age. It was also true in the Reformation and the Renaissance. And whilst it's scary and um, it sort of reflects perhaps our weakness as human beings, it also offers a remarkable opportunity for us to shape the future. So that's the call in my book, the call to everyone, whether you're a parent, a teacher, a student, an entrepreneur, a regulator, um, a university professor. We all have the means, the power to shape our future. That, of course, is the great question of the 
concentrate on those and do them very well. Yeah, so you write, like on page 66, there really aren't any original ideas in tech. And is that also, does that truism extend as well to the criticisms of uh, technology and the internet? Are there new criticisms that come to light based on fresh evidence and new experiences? Or are the criticisms kind of like already out there and we just kind of slowly are um, understanding what they mean and what the ramifications of them are? I think a lot of the criticism is out there. I mean, obviously, this technology is new. Smart machines, smart algorithms, Google, Facebook, these global social networks are new. But even the idea of networks isn't new. The idea of an encyclopedia or a search engine or a library is new. These are just electronic versions, globalized. Uh, electronic versions. My point, though, is that what isn't new is the way in which we feel disorientated by all this change, the way we don't feel we can control the future, the future controls us. And what particularly isn't new is the challenge for us to impose our signature uh, for the future to reflect us rather than us reflect the future. So my book is about empowerment. It's a a kind of a menu, a recipe for people to see how others are changing the world. I spent a year traveling around the world. I went to India and Estonia and Singapore, spent a lot of time in Western Europe, spent time on both the East and the West Coast of the U.S. It's a decidedly, aggressively global book and says, look, there's no simple answers. There's no singular answers. There's no app to fix the future. Yeah, there's no silver bullet. Right. There are there are some countries which are doing a better job than others. And Estonia is a particularly interesting example, but it's a small country and it's hard to scale that. Same is true of Singapore. But we can learn something. Local government in the U.S. can learn from the Singapore model. Uh, so I think for people who are bemused by what's going on around them, and I think that would include most of us, this offers a beginning, a kind of map, a way out. That's what we use maps for, to find our way around to find our way, if you like, into the future. And that's what my book is focused on doing. It was surprising. So I was born in the, the uh, mid-70s. And, of yeah. course, we were kind of promised that, like, by the 2000s, we would have, like, moon colony vacations and jetpacks and flying cars. And this future would be this grand utopia, which you kind of reference as well in the book. And I, I didn't realize until I read this book that that was always a passive way to kind of inherit the future. I didn't know which, like, who's going to make these moon colonies and jetpacks. Like, is it a corporation? Is it the government? Are we just going to all just get one? Like, it's weird because sometimes I think we forget, like, decisions that we make today have a huge impact on what we're, what will happen tomorrow and in the future, for, especially for future generations. Yeah, you're right. And um, the real question is not whether we have these technologies, which are exciting, but who owns them, how we pay for them, um, and what the structure of society looked like. So if you'd have been told in the mid-70s that there would be this instant network where you can look anything up, or another network where two million people are on it and you can connect with anyone, or an, uh, an everything store where you can buy anything instantaneously and it be delivered within a day or two days, you'd, you'd be amazed and excited. And it is a very exciting idea. But then if you then if you, uh, if you explain, well, this search engine is free, but we pay for it with our data, or uh, the Amazon store, you know, the online everything store is great, but it means that all the stores, are, the physical stores around us are closed. 
slows down, then you'd be a little bit more worried. So the reality is that all new technology comes with costs and opportunities. Well, one of the things that I have really tried to do in this book, I've tried doing in all my work, sometimes a bit more successful than others, but particularly in this book, is I think we need to steer clear of this sort of techno-utopian versus Luddite debate. Either technology is all good or it's bad. It's an absurd conversation. It's counterproductive. It doesn't do anyone any good. And I've often been called a skeptic, although I, I like to think of myself more as a realist. Um, but at the same time, as I'm as, as connected as anyone, I began life as an internet entrepreneur. I love technology, and particularly technology that empowers me, that allows me to live the kind of life I do. I couldn't do what I do without the internet. So if we can steer clear of that kind of Manichaean, Manichaeanism, which uh, unfortunately is inherent in a lot of the conversations about tech today, either it's extremely good or it's extremely bad, I think we'll all benefit. In terms of Facebook and YouTube, which, again, just kind of picking up on the thread of what you're saying, because a lot of people write sometimes about Facebook being really bad or YouTube is really good. You talk about the um, the lack of curators for those sites uh, specifically. And uh, when you do away with curation, you kind of undermine truth. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, I think on Facebook, for example, Mark Zuckerberg was faced with a challenge after all the fake news scandals of the last few months. Either he becomes a, a, a media curation platform, I don't know what the numbers are, some ridiculous number, maybe 50% of people rely now on Facebook to get their news. Or he goes back to his original idea of it being a platform for family and friends. So he did retreat from the idea of a media platform and, and fall back on the notion of family and friends. But the problem with Facebook is that, is that everything we get on Facebook, all the links, all the references, they all are echo chambers because they reflect who we are. We tend to make friends and have family members with people we agree with from similar ethnicities, socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, often political ideologies. So what's happened is that the Internet, I think, has degenerated into a kind of global village where we have acquired villager mentality of xenophobia and localism. It accounts also for our increasing localism and xenophobia, I think, in, in political life. Tribalism. Um, sorry, when it comes to YouTube, look, YouTube is an amazing product in, on one level. It has all the videos, everyone goes on it all the time. The problem with YouTube is it isn't properly curated. And the problem with that is twofold. Firstly, it's full of really unpleasant stuff. YouTube is making money from violent jihad beheadings and other forms of racism and sexism. There's no pornography, I don't think, on YouTube, but there's everything else. And the other problem with YouTube in economic terms is it's become the dominant middleman. It, it, it was the first mover in online video. It got there very first. It's a brilliant achievement by the founders. They, their timing was perfect. But now since most, I don't know what the numbers are, but you know, 30 or 40% of online video goes through YouTube, they control everything. So they take large amounts of the profit. They've become this really unproductive middleman. And the creatives, the one who are creating the value, they're not seeing all the profit. So what we need is a more of a, a, a re-decentralization of the internet, where you have networks which allow consumers and producers Consumers of entertainment and creators of entertainment directly connect. Patreon is a better example of that. YouTube 
has all the worst of the old world and the new world combined. Yeah, isn't that kind of like ironic that we kind of, to go forward, we almost have to go back? Because that's an old model. That model has been there for like painters and uh, kings and queens. It's been, the Patreon is like it's old model, it's been there forever. Well, there's only, look, there's a, if you're a creative person, there's only really two or three ways of making money. Either you have traditional economic deals with movie studios or publishers or newspapers, they pay you for your content. Or you give your content out for free and you realize revenue through advertising. Or as you say, you go back to the old sort of Patreon model where you find wealthy people or wealthy individuals or communities who will support your work. Um, the disappointment with the internet is everyone thought that the free model would work. So the old model, the, the curation model got kind of destroyed. Uh, because no one was willing to pay online and everyone got their stuff for free, either through the free content or through piracy. Which we saw this with music. Yeah, but the new model of advertising didn't work because it was dominated by a tiny handful of people and advertising became so commodified online that it wasn't possible to support oneself. So now this Patreon model is interesting, although I think the streaming models are also interesting. And Ethereum and the other blockchain technologies might also enable that direct communication between consumers and creators, which I think has been a dream of, of many of us for a long time. Well, one of the other solutions you proposed or you kind of explored in the book as well is basic income, which could have a potential on kind of freeing up people a little bit, give them some time, put some more money into their creativity and their work. You see... Yeah, of some of a lot of tech insiders. Uh, I quote a man called Albert Fanger, who's a very distinguished New York City-based venture capitalist. He's a partner at Union Square Ventures. From his point of view, technology is creating this abundance, and by allow by by giving this minimum guaranteed income of say two thousand dollars a month to people, they'll be free to sit at home and become creatives. The problem, of course, with this argument is that. There's no evidence that people, some people will do that, but many other people will sit at home and play video games or spend their money on fast food and drugs and will become increasingly indolent and, and, and uncreative. Um, so it's, it's a hugely important debate. The challenge is not so much even finding the economic means of paying the guaranteed minimum income. It's figuring out how we can make sure that people realize themselves if they don't have jobs. And what jobs mean? Because one of the other threads in the book was kind of rediscovering humanity and kind of figuring out where the human beings fit in this huge equation. Right. Well, I, you know, that's a, a perennial theme in books like this. Uh, as I say in the book, uh, humanity is trending. And I use that word trending <laughs> carefully, sort of an ironic way in terms of social media. But everyone now is talking about humanity. And unfortunately, a lot of people just throw the word around. They don't really know what it means. They think they know what it means. When the word comes out of their mouth or when it pops into their head, it sort of resonates with a notion of humanness. But it's really important to try and come up with a definition of what it means. And I, and I do try to do that at the beginning of the book. I, I build up my definition around this notion of agency, this idea of what distinguishes humans from machines, particularly smart machines is our ability to be creative and establish goals. So being human means really being able to shape the future, fix the future. And I even come up with a, 
my own kind of law for this, you know, the, the famous Moore's Law, Gordon Moore's Law of Intel, who predicted quite accurately, in fact, that consumer chips would double every 18 months. So I come up with a different kind of Moore's Law, Thomas Moore, the 16th century author of Utopia, who I think in his work speaks of the centrality of human agency in shaping a better social future. Did the process of writing this book as well kind of shape your your own personal perspective on your humanity and what it means and how you kind of navigate these um, technologies? Um, well, I don't think that's actually very interesting. Look, I use a lot of the internet. I, I, I spend a lot of time on the internet. I, I'm like everybody else. I probably am in a way addicted to it, or I try to control the addiction. The only thing I did in terms of the book I mean, I couldn't have done the book without all different kinds of technology. I couldn't have done it without computers, network, Google, iPhone. Uh, I couldn't have also done it without jet airplanes because it couldn't have gone around the world or Uber cars. Um, but the one thing I did, which I think enabled me to actually finish the book, it's always, it was a bit late, but not too late, was that I used the, uh, the program, the app Freedom, which switches off the internet. Because when you're writing a book, a challenging, ambitious book, which is How to Fix the Future, which has a lot of themes and narrative, uh, lots of characters, if you're trying to multitask, it won't work. So if I'm doing emails and checking the soccer scores and checking out my IMs at the same time, checking the headlines, the latest idiotic thing that Donald Trump said, <laughs> it's going to be really hard to write a book. So I did switch the thing off while I was writing it, and that was very helpful. I would advise any aspiring writers or actual writers who are struggling to focus, struggling on attention, to look at freedom. It's a pretty affordable app, and it really works well. In terms of humanity, I want to just focus on one other aspect uh, as a, in terms of a solution that you had, which was leadership. And you cite people like uh, Margaret Vestager. Is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah. Uh, she's over in Europe giving uh, Apple and Google, finding them and kind of doing some antitrust suits and things like that. How are you vetting leaders in terms of like people that you know that you've, you're comfortable that they can, you can trust them? They may not get everything right, but at least they are, you're pushing in the right direction. How did you vet like a leader? I talked to them, and if I thought what they were doing was interesting and credible, then I put them into the book. And it's not just people outside tech. Vestager is a good example of a European regulator who's really standing up to these American big tech companies, more actually than anyone in America, probably more than anyone in the world. She's the one who took on Apple about their absence of taxation payments in Europe. She's the one who's taking on Google on three fronts in antitrust. So she's a... Um, a very credible, responsible person. And in the book, she explains to me her philosophy of wanting to improve the lives of Europeans. She has a sense of responsibility and accountability. I think that's ideal as a politician. But as I suggest in the book, you don't have to be a regulator to be responsible. There are entrepreneurs and investors here. Uh, I spent some time with a woman uh, called Frida Kapoor-Klein, who's a, a well-known Silicon Valley uh, investor and insider. And she uh, uh, a place called Capor Capital, a, a building and a network in Oakland, just over the bridge from Silicon Valley, from San Francisco, who's committed to investing in tech companies that make the world a better place. Uh, Mark Benioff, I mentioned in the book, the multi-billionaire CEO of 
Salesforce. I think he's doing a very credible job. He's not ideal. He's not perfect. And in the book, I, I kind of lay down the gauntlet, I think, for people like Jeff Bezos, who I think is capable of great, great deeds. But at the moment, I think he's still too much focused on Amazon. He's had half his life as an incredibly successful, brutal businessman. But like Bill Gates in the past, and like Andrew Carnegie and other rubber barons, I think that somebody like Gates has a responsibility to give back. I think he's a grown-up, in contrast with someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who remains a bit of a kid, a bit yeah. naive and idealistic. I mean, yeah, Bezos does seem to be kind of slowly shifting. One early indicator of that is his investment in the, in the Washington Post, which I think is rapidly becoming or has become the best newspaper, the most um, the most uh, valuable newspaper in the United States. So the the new book is How to Fix the Future, and uh, what's the plan? Are you going to do some speaking gigs? Are you going to speak at some conferences, take it on the road, tour it? Yeah, I'm doing a huge amount of speaking. I'm pretty much booked up from now through uh, beginning of the summer. So there's a lot of interest in this book. I'm, I'm very happy about this. I think the timing is right. Everyone's scratching their head about how to fix these big issues. We saw Robert Mueller last week coming out and explaining showing how uh, a small group of Russian hackers financed by the Putin's Kremlin basically undermined or tried to corrupt and perhaps even successfully corrupted American democracy. So these are real issues. There's nothing abstract about them. We want to fix them. And, and 2018, I think, is the year where the fix will become the thing in itself. We know all the problems now. Now what we need to focus on is the fix. You're very optimistic. I'm not very optimistic, but I'm not very pessimistic either. I'm realistic. It's going to be a hard slog, just as in 1850, it was a hard slog to, to make sure that 11-year-old children didn't work in factories or factories didn't belch their pollution over cities to make them uninhabitable. It's going to take time, a lot of effort. Um, but I'm in the long term, I'm optimistic because I still have faith in human beings to make the right decisions. I think that collectively, that's what we've always done throughout history. We haven't always succeeded with the Industrial Revolution. It's a complex narrative. Some countries have succeeded more than others. In Germany, it led to fascism. In Russia, it led to communism, which were both huge failures. Uh, it's certainly not ideal in the United States or Canada or the U.S., but I am cautiously optimistic. But I also think we need books like mine and these kind of conversations and podcasts like yours to be responsible and accountable. Um, it's um, it's going to be a, a long path, a long slog, and it has no end point. The future doesn't have the future isn't a destination. It's not like that place on a, on Google or Apple Maps which mm. we arrive at. Because as soon as we get somewhere, then there'll be other issues, other challenges. Nothing ever ends. All right, let's, let's leave it there. That's a good kind of positive note. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for taking some time to write the book and kind of talking to me about how to fix the future. Uh, the book is available now at all the usual spots. Thank you, and I know that's a great interview, and I really appreciate your thoughtful questions, um, and I wish you a lot of luck with your podcast. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Okay.
That was my interview with Andrew Keen. His new book is How to Fix the Future. It's available now at all the usual spots, including Amazon. <laughs> and uh, my name is Sam Yunin. This has been my summer layer. You can follow me on Twitter at MyPalSammy. Thank you.